Life is hectic, so wherever tomorrow takes you, be ready with Factor's chef-crafted and dietitian approved meals delivered right to your door. With over 35 options a week, including keto, calorie smart, vegan and veggie, and more, they've got a variety that fits your lifestyle. Factor has restaurant-quality meals ready to heat and eat in just two minutes. They also have various easy options for the entire day, from breakfast to midday bites, smoothies, and more. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is a nutritious and delicious experience, and it won't break the bank. You can customize your meals by choosing 6 to 18 per week. Plus, you can pause or reschedule deliveries anytime to fit your schedule. Factor meals are 100% hassle-free, giving you more time for what matters. Head to factormeals.com slash otherside50 and use the code otherside50 to get 50% off. That's code otherside50 at factormeals.com for 50% off your delicious, hassle-free meals. Hi, my name is Julie Chimes. I was a British businesswoman in 1986 doing all the things you're supposed to do to have a successful life. And uh, I was seriously questioning that particular path. Little did I know that my questions would lead to an event which would irrevocably change my life forever in ways I could never have imagined back then. Well, I have to go really a little bit back from the actual day because I was questioning my life and I asked myself, I was a a successful businesswoman, I had companies in London, I knew marketing and and on the surface I had all the accoutrements of, of a successful life, I guess, you know, I had a a good partner and I'm in the country the material things that we're told are so important and yet I still felt an emptiness it's just something wasn't right I didn't feel I was being true to myself and yet I really didn't know what that even meant and I've never given any time I was in my early 30s and not given any time to really ask myself the question seriously I didn't have self-inquiry just a nagging thing in the back of my mind that surely this life is there's much more to it so much more and I feel it's flitting by and I'm not really I'm not going to get anywhere with the life that I'm living I mean I was a racing driver I had a lot of excitement and I was a real adrenaline freak and I loved playing sport at high level and and all of that but still I felt something was missing And I felt that I was with a person in my life who I liked very much. We were great friends, but this wasn't the feeling that I thought you were supposed to have when you were in love with somebody. And it just was very convenient and comfortable, shall we say. I love that particular man to this day. He's a brother and friend, so he understands and would laugh hearing me say that. But it's really the truth. So I went away for a few days. I flew from London over to Europe and Spain. And my mother was staying um, in southern Spain. And I thought I'd go and just take some time out and have a real think about maybe if there was something different I could do. And so my mother had a terrible relationship with a very controlling and difficult man, my stepfather. And they were actually at logging. So it's probably the worst possible environment to have any peaceful contemplation. But during that, those few days, I had a, had a series of very profound dreams and even a nightmare where I saw my partner in the cottage that we shared. 
being attacked and by a sort of mad woman and screaming that she'd got him and he was hers and a very it was so intense in fact that I phoned him up from Spain and um and asked him you know are you okay and he was on a self-awareness course for his personal growth things that would be deal in the 80s and he was a doctor and he was trying to find out more about sort of alternative things for his patients and clients and he thought this particular course sounded interesting and he did say to me that there was someone on the course who was a little bit odd anyway there's a whole backstory to that which people if they're interested can find out a lot more about but suffice to say that when I came back into England I got to the airport and my mother who was very psychic person and you know a mother always knows and she said I, I know something's wrong in your life and I am going to do something that is ridiculous but I beg you don't get on that plane and I said what do you mean and she said well I just beg you don't get on the plane and I said mom I've got to go back I've got so much work and I can't afford not to go back and blah blah things you sort of say when you're a busy person and she started to cry because she's psychic, I said, look, if you think the plane's going to crash, just tell me. Yeah. She said, no, no, it's not the plane. I can't explain. I, I have this terrible, heavy feeling inside my heart. She had a gold cross on the chain and she took it off and put it around my neck. And she said, wear this. And I said, mommy, it's not my thing. But she said, just wear it. Promise me. So I said, if it makes you feel better, okay, I'll put it on. And I sort of tucked it into my, my clothes got back into London and I was really troubled by my mum you know I thought well maybe she's just projecting her own unhappiness and heaviness of heart onto me anyway when I got back I got all sorts of business meetings the next day and I was all sort of gung ho and ready to get back into my life and and I've had had some thoughts about maybe moving to Spain and doing something out there and like seeds you know that were growing in my mind and we received a phone call early in the morning, like about five o'clock in the morning. And in, back in England then, doctors were on call. You know, they had, they didn't have call centres or anything. Actually, the doctor himself was had a rotor and he would do maybe three or four nights a week and early mornings. And so police and, and you know, emergency services, etc., would know who was the duty doctor. And if they had a problem, they knew who to phone. So... These early morning phone calls nearly always were some sort of emergency. And it was police from um, calling from a, a railway station saying they had um, somebody they had to take off a London bound train because this person was behaving in a very odd way. And they couldn't find out anything about her. She was refusing to give any information other than she gave the number of the doctor's surgery police phoned the, and got an answer phone message to say the duty doctor this morning is the duty doctor then well actually it wasn't my partner that was the duty doctor that morning it was another doctor he'd received the call and he was a junior doctor and he didn't know how to handle it so he then said look please would you put the call through to to my senior partner and he'll know what to do so the call came through to us and and I could hear a one-sided conversation and saying, you know, well, I don't know, I don't recognise that name. I don't know who that person is. Quite confused. The thing is, I'm very, very busy this morning. So could you bring her to my practice, um, to the surgery building, later on this morning? Could you take care of her till then? And the police seemed to agree with that or whoever it was who was speaking to. And then 
anyway, he went off to work and I just sort of said, I've got a really horrible feeling. Will you be careful with this person? Because of that dream that I had, I felt he was in danger. I have to say, it never occurred to me that actually it was me that was in danger. I had no idea. And then a few, maybe an hour later, just as I was ready to go out, I got a phone call from Tony, my partner, and he said, look, I, uh, the, the woman has been brought very early to the surgery and she's rather restless and I can't see her yet. And she's asked uh, because she's actually one of the women on the course and she, you met her in the open evening that they had very briefly. And she said, could she be with you? And wait in, we had a waiting room in our house, which was sort of just a couple of doors down from the surgery, which was usually for private patients. And he said, well, it'd be more comfortable for her. Could she come to the house? I was shocking to say that in this day and age, but back then it was quite normal in a little English village. So I cancelled my appointments. And see, here's one of the big lessons in life. I cancelled everything to be there for this woman to come. And um, when she arrived, she was called by a receptionist and I, I did recognize her and I had had a couple of rather strange encounters with her actually. And I felt quite wary of her coming into the house. I let her in. And then I just felt, oh my goodness, who knows what people are going through in their lives. You know, this, this world can be a really difficult and horrible place. You know, I have had a lot of mental illness and people in my family and my brother's profoundly autistic and so all that side of me came out seeing somebody just shivering and cold and lonely and tearful and so I brought her in and you know made her comfortable as I could and asked what she needed and I sat with her and, and she was just shaking and was cold and then I thought well I know my partner I think it's going to be at least an hour maybe more what am I going to do with this lady? And then I just said, look, I've, I've got an idea. Maybe there's a bedroom on the first floor, a guest room. It's really warm and comfortable. And I feel, you, you know, she told me she hadn't slept for three, three nights. And I said, would you like to just go there and just be in a private bedroom and be, be comfortable and warm? And then, you know, the doctor can see you and you can talk to him. And she said, I would love that. And I said, look, I'll make you a drink. I just have to go and make one phone call. And the cottage that we lived in actually had three floors. So I went up into the top floor attic, which was my office. And I ran up there and I just made a quick phone call to the surgery to see how long Tony would be. It was engaged. I couldn't get through. All the lines were engaged. So I thought, oh, well. As I came back down the first set of stairs, I heard the, ki I heard the kitchen, I heard a drawer rattling. And, and I thought because I said to her make yourself at home if you want to drink now because she refused to drink when she first came in please there's the, there's the tea there's the coffee everything's ready please help yourself so I, I felt oh she's helping herself to a drink that's nice and then anyway as I came down the next flight of stairs I just heard this blood-curdling scream of rage and the woman was running up the stairs to meet me and what she'd actually got out of the drawer was a great big carving knife, which I actually hid at the back of the drawer because it was such a big old thing. And she just plunged it straight into my chest. And the woman that I let in had sort of gone and there was this, like, burden really just saying, I want you to die, I'm going to kill you. I have to save the world and the only way 
to save the world is by killing you and you will die. And I'm in fulminating rage. I'm not going to scream into your into a nice video, but it was the sort of rage of madness and the strength of madness and the pain in the shock. First of all, that anyone could do that to another human being, let alone me. And then with such a horrendous instrument and feeling trapped on this tiny little staircase, uh, you know, the mind goes into this incredible, oh, well, my mind went into this amazing sort of overdrive. And I looked at her and I just don't know what I'm going to do. How utterly helpless I thought I'm going to die on this staircase. And no one will ever know what, what happened or why or kind of madness of it then I felt myself just flying out of this body just like with a great whoosh of the speed of a rocket and I was suddenly just flying through outer space whatever I was I I was aware that there was a body on the staircase being stabbed but I was just free and and flying and, and I felt the most incredible expansive um, freedom of everything, freedom and laughter. I just was laughing with the, you know, the joy as a kid when you go on some big ride and it's so exhilarating and all of that multiplied by thousands. And I felt like galaxies were, were flying. I was as if I was some sort of rocket. And then I felt I was on a, on a huge trapeze, just, just swinging amongst this, peace in the heavens and it was pitch black but I could see all these points of light and then then I felt I was enveloped in in this softness and I was wrapped and cocooned in love a love that I I have it's such a hollow word and there's so many meanings aren't there to love you know but a love that every single part of my consciousness was pulsating and vibrating with this feeling of utter joy. And I thought, this is who I am. This is who I am. This is what I've been missing. This is the part that, that I've lost. And then I thought, yeah, but you're dead. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I must be dead because where am I? Where am I? Who am I? What am I? And what am I going to do? And and suddenly the space felt a little bit more frightening. I had no idea. And I heard this voice. And I can't say I, I saw anybody at this point. I didn't see anything. But this feeling of being enveloped in this softness and kindness and love spoke to me. I guess I heard it as if it were an exterior voice to my human ears and it said don't be afraid we're with you and we love you and you have to go through this um but i'm going to be with you all the way and then the next thing i knew i was back in my body looking through my eyes and i was actually holding on to this knife that was sort of trying to do the utmost damage I just felt my strength sort of just like collapsing. And then I heard, heard this voice then 
again. Uh, but totally enough, when I was back in my body, I heard it inside me saying, you have to use the attacker's strength against you. You have to use that strength. And suddenly I kind of knew what to do. And I, I actually let her go and I moved out of the way. And she, the, she was lunging so hard. She actually, the knife just went into the staircase. And I just fell onto my bum and just slid, slid because I've got no physical strength and slumped down into the floor in the kitchen. And then I heard this voice say, get up, you've got to get up, get up. And I was sort of trying to hold on to the sides of the walls and it felt like I was coming to climb up Mount Everest. Anyway, I did get up and then the next thing I know is this, this woman was back, like, attacking me. And um, I just managed to, again, hold her arm's length and use her strength so that I could walk backwards out of my kitchen and get into um, the hallway of this cottage and I thought right yeah amazing what you think you need so okay someone's going to come and save me that's what's going to happen someone's going to come and save me well how are they going to know how to save you because no one's going it's a busy morning everyone's driving it's in the rain and I thought I've got to get out of the house I've got to get down the drive I've got to get and call out and then I have to interject here with a backstory which saved my life. Just before I went off to Spain, I was on a business meeting in, in the, the centre of London and it was a pretty swanky sort of agency. And the person that I was meeting was delayed because of bad, the bad weather. It was again pouring with rain. And um, I hadn't got time to go back to my office. And I thought, what? Well, there, there wasn't a cafe, it was very residential and sort of big posh houses. And, and then I remembered when I was a little child, my mum had taken me to a place called the Spiritualist Association, which was in this very square in London. And in that building, magnificent old building, there were all these sort of, um, uh, I think, like clairvoyant things going on. And, but my mum used to go there. It was an amazing library of alternative and esoteric books. And... And I thought, I wonder if that building still exists and maybe I can just go in there for an hour and wait out of the rain. I went into this building. There it was, the Spiritualist Association, the old brass plaque on the door. And I, in I went and the receptionist looked up and she said, oh, are you the three o'clock appointment, dear? And I went, oh, no, no, I, I don't have an appointment. I've, and then I thought, it's awful to say, I've just come in to stay out and get out of the rain and I'd like to use your library or it's like saying, you know, I'd like to use your toilet, please. You know, and, and so I thought... And I said, well, I'm, I came here when I was a child and do you still have the library? I'm very interested to see that. And she said, yes, we do, but um, that's from the zoning. And she said, don't be nervous. I know you're the three o'clock appointment. And, um, you know, it's down there, third door on the right. Anyway, I was sort of having a polite argument with this woman. And then I had this sort of, this feeling again, this immense feeling inside me, like I had this whistling in my ear and like somebody saying, it, you know, do it. Do it, come on, do it. And so I put down rather too much money and, and went down to this thing and I went in and had a and I and there was this little man sitting there with the most amazing blue eyes. And he looked at me and he just came out with a stream of information that really he couldn't possibly have known. And he was Scottish, he said, I'm only telling you that, young lady, just to clarify that I am tuned in to another level of existence. They said, I have a message for you. And I went, change your front door. You must 
change your front door. You must. And he was banging on the table about changing my front door. Well, I had had a door sitting in the garage and it was a door that opened, was going to open outwards instead of the little cottage door that opened inwards. And the hall was so tiny that if the door opened inwards, you were really trapped inside. You had to kind of get behind the door to let somebody in or out. And so I was so actually peed off at getting, paying all that money and only being told to start a DIY instruction from inside. But it was so intense that I did actually have the door changed. And so back into that hallway, where the door now opened outwards. So I knew that if I could get my hand up and open the, the latch, that I could fall out of, out into the driveway, which is eventually after quite some struggle, let's say, what I managed to do. She came out after me and, and I was actually had to crawl down my driveway. Now, in this time, I was in and out of my body like a yo-yo. One minute I was I was seeing myself from above and seeing me and thinking, what I can render scene. Like if I saw that, I'd just run like hell in the opposite direction. And then I was sort of back in my body and and this voice just kept saying, You can do it, you're gonna get me down the driveway, you're going to be all right. And I was thinking, I don't think I'm gonna be all right. I felt so ill and so I I didn't know how many injuries I had, but, you know, I'd done my biology exams when I was at school and everything, and I knew that there's only so much blood a human being can lose before they're in a serious trouble, and I thought, you're in serious trouble, girl. Someone's got to come and help you. Someone was stabbing my back as I was crawling. Then when I got into the drive, another little miracle happened in that somebody did rescue me. A builder was on his way to work, and he... He was going off for an early lunch because he'd been working long hours. And he got right past where my driveway was and he was on a high-sided railway bridge and he thought he heard a scream or a shout and he stopped and then he heard nothing. But in the moment he stopped, he realised he'd left his jacket back on the building site, which had his wallet in, so he couldn't buy his lunch, so he had to turn back. And as he came back over the bridge... The first thing he saw was me lying in the driveway. And he was so brave, this guy. He, because I'd say, like everyone else, I have to tell you, was just running away and the cars were driving around me and, and people were gathering and saying things like, uh, well, should we call an ambulance? Well, there's no, no, they're on strike today. Um, has anyone called the police? They were kind of arguing, don't touch her. I'm not ruining my jacket, you know, all that blood. I mean, this, I've had the worst accident on because you could have ever wished for. And I was thinking, like, oh, my God, I don't think I should be hearing all this negativity. And then this young man just came straight over and he said to this woman, put the knife down. Just put the knife down. Come on, it's over. It's done. Put the knife down. And she did. And she went away. And I don't I even see where she'd gone or anything, but the excruciating pain sort of stopped. And and then I think probably, you know, there's a whole story of how I got to the hospital and, and it was kind of miraculous that all the surgeons were there. But I think it's more interesting probably for to know about what happened on the other side whilst all that was going on. 
I didn't get taken in an ambulance because they were on strike and the police were not allowed to take accident victims in their car. Tony had heard by this time that there'd been some terrible accident in his driveway and he turned up and the police were saying, oh, they can't take him in our car. And he said, well, for God's sake, just get her into my car. And then some young police driver who just passed his advanced driving test said, I don't care if I lose my job, get her in the car. I know how I can get her really quickly to the hospital. And so, bless his heart, he risked everything and, and broke the law, which I think sometimes you have to do. Whilst this was going on, I was just taken again right out of my body. And I could hear like Tony in the back of the police car talking to the police driver, like talking to me, saying, stay with us, stay with us, don't go. But it sounded like he was a hundred miles away down a long, long time. I didn't see a tunnel or I didn't have any of that, but I just kept going back into this amazing, beautiful light. And then I found myself on a hillside um, and like it was so beautiful. It was in mountain, high in mountains and I was back in time and I was surrounded by what looked like crusaders, you know, with red crosses on their tunics and armour and a really ancient scene. And then I, I knew where I was and I, I realised I was in the south of France and I was um, part of, of some group that were being persecuted. And, and I was crying out, you know, how many more times have I got to die for you? And I think I was sort of talking to God. And, and I said, I don't want to die this way anymore. I want to live for you. I want to be alive for you. I want to laugh for you. I want to feel everything as part of you. And I was having this sort of dialogue with God as I was being murdered on this hillside in, in the south of France. I mean, I could smell, smell the air, the mountain air and the green and the leaves and, the, and the, all the wonderful sort of foliage beneath my feet. And, and I could feel the pain of that life and and I could have the memory of faces that I knew and, and people there that I loved and I saw this great interconnectedness of events maybe you've murdered me and I've murdered you and we've all danced this dance of consciousness in every role there is and how can you ever be angry with anybody actually and so then I was taken into just like a, a medium, I guess you'd call it in today's time. It's hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of screens, high as you could see beyond where I could see. And there seemed to be no horizon or floor, or, but I was somehow being ushered into this and I was shown these screens. And then I realised that on every one of them was some scene from not just the life of my 30 odd years in, in the UK, but lifetimes, people, places, deserts, mysteries, anger, sadness, loneliness, this, all these things. And the minute I kind of saw a screen that I was a bit intrigued by, I was in it and I was in the scene for real. It was surreal and amazing and so powerful, my God, and so mind blowing to think. When people sort of bandy around that, you know, words like, well, it's karma, it's that. It, I think, do you understand the complexity of it? It's 
it's so vast. It's incredible. The design is so amazing. And, and, and it's all done with so much love. And somehow I knew that whatever was happening to me and whatever had happened to me and whatever will happen to me, there is somewhere a signed agreement you know, from my soul that says, yes, this is the design that I think is going to be good for me this lifetime. And the reasons for it are not necessarily that clear. I think the point of living is you come into earth to experience, to feel, to find your way, to question, to push against, to pull back from, to find your strengths or weaknesses and to become truly healed, to become truly whole, to wake up that spark of the divine that's within everybody. And not only that, you have to then keep it away. That's another story, maybe for another time. So the experiences beyond the life review is something I have been asked a lot about. And those screens it was I was in a kind of it felt almost like a courtroom except it wasn't it was filled with all sorts of people that clearly knew me and I felt that I knew them but I wouldn't couldn't tell you why or how I knew them but they were sort of cheering me on and that you're like that was a real failure wasn't it and then they were laughing it was so loving there was no judgment there was no you silly terrible person you really messed up badly there you not at all it was a real encouragement for me to be absolutely honest and I can't tell you the things in sequence because so much happened on so many levels so quickly so we hang around a little bit with the story but it's uh, the only way in this moment I can tell it um, but the most profound thing of all of this love that I was feeling was when I actually came back into that staircase and the moment that I realised, you know, that I could hold her off and I was going to get out of it and there was a meaning and a purpose, like on some level that one day I prayed I would understand. Out of my mouth as I looked into this woman's eyes, I said, I love you. You will never kill me. No one can kill anybody. I love you. I love you. And that's what made her actually just hold off for enough time for me to manoeuvre to get out of the house. You know, and I think the feeling of that love is, the, and the fragrance and the music of that love, uh, it's an all-encompassing experience. And I felt... When I was in this courtroom, I'm going to call it that for the way to sort of define it, with all the screens and going in and out of these experiences, I felt that as humans, we, we somehow are in like, like a, a game, a game of life, whereby we're actually being stopped from experiencing what love really is. And all of the things that we are, as we are the most creative, incredible beings, potentially. Because a lot of people say, well, you know, well, yeah, what about the person who did that to you? Surely you can't say that she was love or 
I said, but yes, I can because I could see it. I could see the spark in her glowing. And who knows that maybe this event changed her forever as well. Who knows that sometimes what does it take to wake up? We all have different things. Some of us drive our car into a brick wall and at 100 miles an hour. Some of us drop out of a plane. There are as many ways to find that spark on this planet as there are people, I think. And I think there is no one path and there is no one definition of what is on the other side. I think there's a multitude of experience and it's fantastic that that's being gathered and examined and looked at. And there's no one right way or wrong way from what I could get from my own experiences. There's millions of ways to find this love and to find your own ignorance I was shown this light inside us, but it's covered. It's covered with like layers of forgetting. And those layers on some people are very, very dense. And those are the people that seem to have no feelings, no remorse, no forgiveness, no kindness, empathy, all of those qualities that one would associate with a perhaps more awakened being. But the light's still there, it's just covered. And actually, those are the people that need the most love and kindness and compassion shown to them, actually. Not cruelty and punishment. And, you know, I saw the consequences of, you know, the ignorance we have on this earth. And self-righteousness is just as bad, you know, thinking that, that through harshness and cruelty, somehow we're going to achieve love. I don't see how that will ever work. I really don't. I think that people that have had these experiences, and I'm sure, you know, you've probably come across many, many more than I've ever seen. But it was not a common thing when it, this all happened to me. I, it was just like this whole eye-opener. I guess I, I'd always prayed and believed there was something else. Are there places? Are there cities? Are there levels? Well, you know, you can walk down a street in any part of the world you choose, and every house will have a different environment, a different set of belief structures, a different community, different feeling, different food, different people. You know, it's, we're, we're so diverse. And so I think that when you go out of your body, we don't all go just end up in one heavenly pen. I think there's thousands of levels of consciousness and According to how you've lived and how prepared you are to die, think directs where you will go in the next dimensions. And I think we have friends and loved ones rooting for us and with us, and our guardian angels are there. And my angel, I didn't see him, but he was so full of fun and so full of laughter. And he would not let me feel sorry for myself for one second. And he was showing me my life and pointing things out. And I, you know, was feeling terrible about something from them. And then I was just cheering in this scene and then saying, no, it's, it's fine, but you need to remember when you are going to be sent back into your life, you must remember all of this and you must share it. You must share it in any way you can, whenever you can, and bring comfort and bring hope and kick ass, you know, get people to have self-inquiry. If you're living a lie and you know you're living a lie, well, what part of you is it that knows you're living a lie, I would say? You know, like I knew I was living a lie, but I couldn't kind of 
put it into words. I, I wasn't eloquent enough to be able to find what it was that was missing, but I had a feeling something was missing and something was wrong. I, I now, you know, have been shown things about our Earth. You, you cannot live a lie at this time on Earth, really. You cannot. You have to be true to yourself with a capital S. You have to get that spark inside you firing, you know, whether it's creativity, whether you're with the right people. You're, have you found your people, your soul group, you, people you're in harmony with, people you're in laughter with, people you dance with, people you break bread with, people that you can really talk and be yourself with? And if you haven't got those things around you, you right now have to find that. There's far too much hatred and anger and division engineered on this earth, uh, stopping us in the game from really being who we are. And, you know, it was revealed to me in, in different ways in these scenarios. And I think it's good enough to say perhaps that we have many possible futures in any one moment. Karma is like an explosion, like when you blow a dandelion head and all the seeds fly off, any one of those seeds can take take root. And so when you say yes or you say no, it's far more than A or B. It's not AI, it's not binary, it's massive. And consequences of your actions have consequences in every dimension, on every level, above, below, within, without, beyond. And if you know that, I guess Buddhism comes close in its teachings, doesn't it, about mindfulness. You know, be mindful of all that you do and say and how you interact with people and how loving and kind and and at the same time. <laughs> I was shown that I couldn't be some, like, oh, I love you, kill me. Like, kill me. If that's what you want to do, that's fine. I now know there's another side. Let me go. No, I had to fight for my life with every ounce of strength that I had left in me. I had to fight back. And I knew two things in that moment, which I think were quite revelation. Because, you know, if I'd have been asked as a young person, if someone was trying to kill you and you had an opportunity to kill them to save your life would you do that I think I would have said well yeah probably to save my life I guess I would but I can now say from the actual experience I couldn't I could not harm her but neither could I let her kill me it's that razor's edge thing where I had to use my strength and my willpower and my my newfound friends in the spirit on the other side to help me guide me what to do to get out of the house to, to survive what was going to happen in the hospital and the subsequent events which were the aftermath horrendous um, and so you know to do that every moment I had to be aware of standing up for myself and being strong and uh, you know I think there's so many misconceptions about you know, when you have these experiences, you don't come back like, I, well, I don't think I'm coming back like some sort of evangelical person. Um, I, you, you have to fight to keep that light alive and 
awake and you have to learn who wants to put your light out and who wants to make you shine. And um, I think you have to learn to have a discrimination uh, of what is good and what is not good for you as a soul. You have to be able to choose good company. You have to be honest about your addictions and attachments and aversions and, and all your fears and inhibitions and you know, really truthful with yourself. And the more you can do that, whatever path you're on, whatever culture you're from, whatever religion you choose to follow or not follow, whether you believe in something or not, there is an inner moral code within us. We know how to behave. We must know how to behave and keep away from people who violate that. You know, we're all victims of things at certain times, but it doesn't mean you have to, you know, you don't have to have this thing for the rest of your life. It's a phase that you go through and there's no definition of time on it and you need to grieve and you need to heal and all those things that you need to do, but then you need to get over it. You do. And the questions are, what have I lost? What have I gained? And the most important question, what have I learned? And if you keep asking yourself that over and over, gradually you put a whole new way of defining your experience and you can elevate it to something that's actually really valuable to you. You can see its value, even in its horror and trauma, you can find its value. And when you do that, it's a kind of surrender. You're, you're not fighting it like why me why did that happen to me because whatever you're doing that you can't get close to your essence and your truth I met a loved one on the other side in a dream uh, my nan I, I love my nan so much she was the most beautiful that's her dress and all her little bits behind um, my nan and she said in this dream which was another thing I have profound dreams said <laughs> wonderful dreams and rubbish ones, of course. But my man said, I can't get close to you, darling, when your tears are soaking the pillow. And I think that was such a profound message. You know, when we're when we're just lost in our grief, and they're there, but they can't get through to us when we put up such an impenetrable barrier of anger or sadness or whatever it is that keeps us off balance. I would urge everybody, no matter what has happened to you, try to find the answer to those questions and to ask yourself that somewhere within your soul, you have agreed this. And you may even have volunteered to do something to help somebody else that you really love. There's so many different ways you can come at these situations. If it had been hours, you know, on a different day, hours later, one of my partner's children could have been in the house. You know what I mean? There are so many outcomes and you think, well, you have to find, oh, thank goodness it was me. I was strong enough to, and I did survive it. You know, if it had been anyone else, maybe that wouldn't have been such a, an outcome. And I've had the courage to speak out. I mean, I have to laugh because, you know, um, it's fabulous what you're doing and this website and all these gorgeous stories and people from all over the world can go and delve and research and, and question and challenge. 
But back when I went on TV and, and radio and all sorts of things, it was live television and basically people just didn't believe anything. And they thought I was a fruit bat. Well, I am a fruit bat, but not because of that. And I feel like a bit of a nutcase. And and so I met them. I, I was sort of confronted with priests who were sort of brought, almost sort of saying to me, you know, this is evil what you're saying. And I, th- but I said, well, I think it's I think it's a really bad news if you tell somebody they're a sinner and that they're a bad person. I think that that's just the wrong message to be giving humanity right now. You know, you're amazing human beings. Everything is within you. And speaking of crucifixes, that cross my mother put around my neck. When I was trapped in the hallway and this woman had grabbed me by, you know, grabbed my sweater to try and pull me closer and, and using the knife with the other hand, as she pulled, she, the cross flew out and, and this crucifix just absolutely froze her. You know, like she was transfixed. I, I think because she thought she was doing God's work, she didn't expect to see a big gold cross come out of me. And it was that that enabled me to open the door and actually get out. Actually.